Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in July. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. When George Bird Grinnell died in 1938, papers across the country memorialized his many accomplishments. The New York Times declared Grinnell the father of American conservation. So why is his name so hard to place? In Grinnell, a new biography, John Tolliver recounts the life of a man whose prophetic vision of environmental devastation, urgent appeals for government intervention, feels more relevant by the hour. Uh, George Grinnell established the first Audubon Society, authored several sensitive for the time ethnographies of Plains Indians tribes, lobbied for the creation and protection of our national parks, established the Boone and Crockett Club over dinner with Teddy Roosevelt, and... uh, most notable was his tenure as editor-in-chief of Forest and Stream, where he would espouse in no mild terms his evolving prescient vision for conservation in America. The author John Tolliver is a graduate of Harvard College, former senior editor at Newsweek, author of five previous books, including All the Great Prizes, winner of the Douglas Dillon Award. Uh, he lives in Texas and Montana and joins us for the hour. John Tolliver, pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Uh, good to have you. Uh, good to have you with us. Um, so, uh, first question, probably the one you get uh, first all the time. Um, as I read um, that information from your biography, there, uh, it seems like George Grinnell should be better known. Why isn't he? Well, there's so much ground to cover with George Bird to ground uh, George Bird Grinnell, uh, and that's why he's so much so hard to cover. No one's really been able to get their arms all the way around him. Um, environmentalists, environmental historians know him as the founder of the first Audubon Society and has worked with the public lands and saving buffalo from extinction. And then uh, Native American historians uh, recognize his great accomplishments as the ethnographer of a number of Indian tribes and his chronicling of the Indian War. So everybody's taken a slice of him, and nobody's gotten their arms all the way around him until now. What was your um, what was your interest? Uh, how did you come across George Bird Grinnell? Well, Grinnell has been been uh, stalking me for a while. I wrote a biographer biography of the Western American artist Charles Russell, the cowboy artist, and. And he was a friend of Grinnell's. I wrote a book about Alaska. Grinnell spent some time in Alaska on an expedition. I wrote a book about the Black Hills. Grinnell was in the uh, Naturalist with George Armstrong Custer in the Black Hills in 1874. He just kept popping up, so I thought, well, let's take him head on. And when I did, I found a real motherload. He was a man of uh, left behind quite a trail of of accomplishments and also some 40,000 pages of letters, 50 years of diaries, uh, a lifetime of editorials in his um, magazine, Forest and Stream. Uh, by the way, you've uh, written a biography of Edgar, Edgar Rice Burroughs of Tarzan fame. Uh, I assume there's no connection there. <laughs> uh, no, except that I, I tend to have focused on the late 19th, early 20th century, how we... Uh, carried forward from the frontier and the uh, notion of the, of the rugged individual and how that uh, translated into the 20th century. If you think of, of Tarzan, the noble savage, he was an iconic figure uh, embraced by early 20th century um, 
comic book readers and moviegoers uh, as a, a notion of, of, a, of a time when, when men were really men. Grinnell, Grinnell was traveling in that, uh, in that same territory. So um, Grinnell and his family, at seven years old, uh, moved to the grounds of Audubon Park. Uh, the, and that, in a way, uh, set the course of Grinnell's life, uh, I think. Well, I think uh, it, uh, it really put a stamp on him. George Bird Grinnell was the son of a, a patrician, wealthy New York uh, banker and merchant. His father, to get away from the um, crowding and um, some of the health concerns of New York City, bought a place up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan Island in the 1850s. It was the estate that had previously belonged to John James Audubon, the, the great naturalist and, and artist. Audubon had just died, but his, family, his widow and his family were there. And Grinnell got to see uh, um, Audubon's legacy, and he also saw a city encroaching on this wonderful um, farm on the, in the rural Manhattan Island. And so he, he sort of got notion as a young man of, of paradise lost or about to be lost that carried forward through his time uh, in college and immediately after graduating from Yale in 1870 he didn't want to go to work on Wall Street so he went out west with one of his professors first time he'd really gone west of the Hudson River and like so many of us who, who saw the west as young men it, it changed us forever. He, he developed an interest in paleontology, I think got his degree in paleontology. Yeah, that's right. Uh, his professor was a guy named Oth Neil Marsh, which was one of the great dinosaur diggers who brought back uh, the first bones of the, of the Eohippus, the miniature prehistoric horse, the first pterodactyl. Um, but on this trip in 1870, Grinnell went with a group of his Yale buddies, and one of their guides was Buffalo Bill. They were had uh, Indian escorts. Of course, the Plains Indians were still um, not happy with the incursions made by white America on the Great Plains on their buffalo hunting grounds. And Grinnell saw uh, um, got a, a graphic lesson in evolution. One, he saw these uh, ancient species that they were digging up out in the prairies. And two, he saw that the buffalo were already becoming extinct, nearing that. And, and then, of course, the next step in the extinction was when the buffalo went, so went the Indians. So he got a real crash course in what was happening to the North American continent, and it stuck with him as a 20-year-old, and he committed his life to um, advocating on behalf of open lands, national parks, wild species, wild habitat, and he dedicated his life to it for the next um, 70 years. Uh, so uh, there, there's a series of, uh, well, a whole group of young men, Teddy Roosevelt, George Grinnell, others, uh, who are heading out west uh, but living part of their lives in the east. Uh, what, what was Grinnell wanting to do by, well, by heading of, out west? It's funny, that sort of didn't, I didn't really form that complete thought until I was almost done with my research. The, the Transcontinental Railroad was completed in 1869. Before that, uh, and if you think of how people got to Utah uh, before that, or how people, uh, Lewis and Clark, got across the country, how the, 
the uh, 49ers got to California. It was a long, arduous trek. Suddenly in 1869, a person could almost commute to the American West. That allowed people living on either coast to go out for a few weeks uh, in, in relative comfort. And, and Grinnell was one of the first really to do that, his first trip west with his, his Yale expedition. What was in 1870, a year after the railroad was completed? And he continued to live in New York, um, but every summer he would spend weeks, months, um, usually in Montana, um, doing research and, and having adventures, climbing mountains and naming glaciers and that sort of thing. Uh, Roosevelt did the same thing when he went out to Dakota Territory a few years after Grinnell first went west. And, and I think it really changed the American West. And, and in one really big way, it changed our, uh, the conservation and preservation of the American West because Grinnell was really the prototype of the American conservationist. We call him an environmentalist today because he had the experience in the American West and then he could go back east where he had influential friends. He had a voice in the press. He knew important people in Washington. He could go to Washington and lobby on behalf of the causes that he cared about. Teddy Roosevelt very much the same. And if you think of organizations today that are so powerful in shaping environmental policy in the American West, uh, these organizations are driven by affluent people on either coast. Grinnell was the first. There, there's a uh, photograph I want to have you talk about. This is just opposite the title page. Um, I assume this is Grinnell, young, young George Grinnell, very much in Western mode, dressed in buckskin, fringes, and uh, uh, is he posing for a photograph here? I'm not sure. Well, uh, I wish uh, I'll try to describe it. Yeah, he's uh, in a uh, on a set in a photographer's studio in the fall of 1870, dressed up in highly decorated buckskins. It looks like there's little hearts on it. Um, we kind of it's a, it's a dude picture, and maybe you did it. I did. You know, we all bought our first pair of cowboy boots. I'm originally from the East, um, lived a while in Texas. Uh, Grinnell went uh, as a young city boy um, with this Yale expedition, this paleontological dig out into the heartland of Nebraska, Wyoming, and one of his first guides uh, was Buffalo Bill Cody. Well, Buffalo Bill Cody was already a celebrity in the pulp press and on the stage, and and Grinnell, at the end of that, uh, at summer, he, before he turned around in San Francisco to come back east to work at his father's uh, bank, he bought this outfit, or maybe he just borrowed it and posed, um, trying to look as much like Buffalo Bill as possible. In the book, there's also a photograph of Buffalo Bill, and uh, taken that very same year, and Cornell is dressed almost exactly like him. So there's the metamorphosis of the Easterner who wants to be recognized as a Westerner. And um, I found that photograph, by the way, uh, in the back of a box of papers in the Yale Library. Uh, I don't think it had ever been seen before. So over to I don't know, originally over time, and, and the, the photo on the front of the book, it's an old Grinnell, 
Um, he just he's dressed for hiking. It looks like carrying a rope. Uh, looks fairly comfortable in this this country. Uh, over time, did he? How did he see himself? Was he an Easterner who went west a lot? Was he at heart a Westerner who had to, uh, because of the things he was doing, be in the East for what for t- parts of the year? How did he see well, himself? Well, I mentioned uh, almost facetiously that one could commute to the American West. Well, Grinnell sort of did that, and as adventurous as he was, he became a creature of habit. He adopted the state of Montana. Uh, starting with his uh, first trip out here in 1875 to survey a route from the Missouri River down to Yellowstone National Park. And he kept coming back almost every year. Eventually in 1885, he was invited out to the Blackfeet Reservation, which is in northwestern Montana on the Rocky Mountains front. And he saw the great mountains there and uh, for the first time, a country that would eventually, thanks to Grinnell, become Glacier National Park. And he came back almost every year, and he climbed up into those mountains. He named most of the the glaciers up there, including one called Grinnell Glacier. And he he had seen what had happened on his trip to the Black Hills in 1874, how it would be invaded by miners and white people. He saw... The, uh, how Yellowstone was being surrounded and thre- threatened from his trip there. And he, and he said, we've got to do something to save what he called the crown of the continent. And starting in the early 1890s, he, kept, he pressed for a national park up there. And it, and it took another 15 years, but it created Glacier National Park. Um, this gave him great credibility. He, in the East, he was, he was a... Western man. He, they saw him as a man who knew who knew the Indian, had climbed the mountains, uh, who who had camped in the wild places. In the West, he was a man of powerful medicine in the East. So it gave him sort of a, a, a double-edged credibility and, and clout, and, and that was the identity that he really seemed to enjoy. He could shift between two worlds and. Uh, and really benefited from it, and so did the country. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk uh, much more. Um, John, or, or uh, George Bird Grinnell, founded the first Audubon Society. Uh, he was very influential in uh, creation and protection of our national parks, established the Boone and Crockett Clubs, and uh, maybe most importantly at all, he was editor-in-chief for many years of uh, Forest and Stream, where he had a, a big megaphone there. And he uh, lobbied on behalf of uh, Native Americans, uh, much to talk about, and we'll talk about that with uh, the biographer, John Tolliver, following uh, this break. On the next On Being, public theologian Serene Jones on grace and theology as a clarifying lens on the human present. You're set free, actually, by the telling of the truth, and you can move into a place where it actually propels you into the future through love. I'm Krista Tippett. Join us. Sundays at 5 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. On the next edition of the Putumayo World Music Hour, we celebrate the midwinter holidays of Christmas, Hanukkah, and Kwanzaa. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howard. 
pack your bags and join us for this special holiday edition of the Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in July. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about George Bird Grinnell, who, when he died in 1938, uh, was described by the New York Times as the father of American conservation. He uh, founded the first Audubon Society. He uh, lobbied for creation and protection of our national parks, was the influential editor-in-chief of Forest and Stream uh, for many years. Uh, We don't know about him uh, today. That uh, is being rectified in part by a new biography called Grinnell, America's Environmental Pioneer and His Restless Drive to Save the West. The author, John Tolliver, is joining us uh, for the hour. So, John Tolliver, uh, this side, just a little bit more about the commuting to the West and all of these uh, Eastern men, young men mostly, um, heading out to the West. Uh, in part, I think, Teddy Roosevelt's an example of this, uh, to reinvent themselves. Did uh, George Grinnell, is that part of his impetus, reinventing himself? Reinvent himself, yes, he did very much so, um, because he didn't want to be confined by the um, by the city life, by the, the program his father had lined out for him to be to sit on a bench in Wall Street and learn the trade. Grinnell um, um, saw himself as well. He had a secret in his life too. Uh, he wanted uh, not. He didn't marry till he was in his fifties. Um, he didn't want to participate in a lot of the social activities in the East. He was a serious. Cl- he belonged to clubs, but he didn't go to many of them. He was very committed to uh, environmental causes, and in terms of his personal relationships, it's very evident from my research. That he enjoyed the company of men and some and made some very strong male friendships, very few female friendships until he was in his fifties. Um, I have no uh, absolute ironclad evidence of it, but I think he was a closeted gay man. And, and hard to get at that because he he didn't reveal a lot of himself in his in, in his writings. Well, he, his, most of his correspondence was dictated in an office to a stenographer, so he had to tiptoe very carefully. And it was a very uh, back then. It was it was illegal. It was a, there was a huge taboo against it. And I think part of his decision to to go back and forth is that he never really had one foot planted in one place for too long, and it it, it gave him a little more liberty to uh, avoid scrutiny. Hmm. Uh, he, he did marry later in life. Yes, he married at age 52 to a woman half his age who was a very uh, out... Uh, she was a, a very athletic, loved the outdoor things he did, climbed the mount, climbed mountains, rode horses as well, uh, was a photographer, and for a while accompanied him on his trips to Indian reservations to take pictures of um, the tribes and in, in natural settings doing their their customary uh, domestic things. And, and her name was Elizabeth Grinnell, uh, another overlooked person. She's, uh, uh, her 
photographs are, are worth revisiting as well. Mm. The thing about Grinnell I'd really like to add is, is that, you know, my goal of my book was to reintroduce the world to this man who was not a minor figure. He wasn't sort of just one more naturalist or conservationist in the whole uh, sort of Mount Rushmore of conservationists. He knew everybody from John Muir to Aldo Leopold to Gifford Pinchot, all these people, but he was a major influence on them. Before they really got their great influence, there was already Grinnell working hard for the same causes. I'd like to say that he's a, he was a, a new voice, but today the things that Grinnell were saying uh, sound like we've been hearing them forever. They, a lot of them began with him, his concern for wild habitat, for wild species. The Audubon Society is a great example, and maybe we can talk about that next. Uh, yes, uh, uh, certainly. So that that's uh, one of the first things. Uh, you say he's very prescient, and it, it is true. These warnings that he's sending out, we'll get into forest and stream, but yeah, talk about Audubon Society. Well, the bells that Grinnell was ringing in the 1880s are, are ringing loudly, if not even more loudly, today. Uh, feathers in women's hats were a huge fashion, sort of like the uh, beaver hats were uh, in the mid and early 19th century. And birds were being killed off just by the thousands. The rookeries of Florida were being devastated uh, it was a huge, huge industry. Grinnell, with his father, had bought a gentleman's um, sport, sporting magazine in New York called Forest and Stream, which uh, he turned into a megaphone for his conservation causes. In the pages of that magazine, he started calling attention to what was happening to the birds of America remember his Audubon connection. He was very, very um, sensitive to bird life um, because of his time living in Audubon Park in New York. And so he said, look, we need to do something and save these, these birds. So he sprung from, from, springing from his magazine, Forest and Stream, he started something called the Audubon Society. And his audience was, was primarily women. And women joined the first Audubon Society, and he, uh, they all got together. There were hundreds and hundreds of them sent in subscriptions, and they all had meetings, and they said, look, we must, must all agree not to wear, wear feathers in our hats. There's a funny little bit that women who didn't wear feathers in their hats called them Audubonets. <laughs> well, um, that Audubon Society kind of sputtered after a few years. It was a lot of work to keep it going, but it eventually took hold uh, and became the National Association of Audubon Societies. Uh, and the, Grinnell did one more thing. He, he realized that through his work with his first Audubon Society that migratory birds were not being protected. There were state laws to protect birds, but birds didn't recognize state lines. They, came, they migrated from the Arctic all the way to the Caribbean, and every law had a, every state had a bag limit, every had a different season, and Grinnell and his cohort of friends, his Audubon Society friends, 
realize that we need a federal law, federal migratory bird law, to protect these migratory birds that were flying across the country. And it was the first time that the federal government stepped in and said, environmental law, it should be a federal issue, not state by state. And this law took almost 20 years for Grinnell and his, and his um, like-minded friends to pass, but it was a precedent for the Endangered Species Act. You can hear all the hue and cry of states' rights and this, that, and the other thing, but um, you got to credit Grinnell for putting this idea forward in the first place. So he really is does is worthy of our atten- attention for, for founding conservation the way we understand it today. He was um, he participated in buffalo hunts, right? He, he writes about the excitement of it all, but he he came to see that this was this was going to wipe out the buffalo if we didn't do anything, do something. Well, everybody wishes they'd gotten to the West a little bit earlier. If we'd just gotten here yesterday, things would have been better. He came out in the 1870s. He was fortunate enough to, in 1872, to ride along with the Pawnee Indians out into the Nebraska-Kansas Prairie and participate in one of the very last uh, Native American buffalo hunts in the old way. But within a few years, the buffalo were all but decimated. And um, one of the few places they remained was in Yellowstone National Park. Um, and he saw the national parks, or the national park, there was only one at the time, as the place to, to repropagate this dying, uh, this dying species. So... Having seen the, the great herds of buffalo and then seeing how quickly they're gone, he said, we've got to do something about it. And, and really, that was one of the main reasons why Yellowstone became a national park, was as a place where game could be protected. We've, we've forgotten that a little bit today. It's now, parks are now regarded as a pleasuring ground. That was the original um, organic act for Yellowstone National Park, but Grinnell also saw it as a place. So let's keep the buffalo alive here and see if we can get them, uh, save them. If you just joined us, we're talking about uh, George Bird Grinnell, uh, who's uh, kind of been forgotten today. That's being rectified with uh, this uh, new biography called Grinnell, America's Environmental Pioneer and His Restless Drive to Save the West. The author is uh, John Tolliver, who's joined us uh, for, for the hour. I wonder if you tell us about the establishment of the Boone and Crockett Club, which he did with Teddy Roosevelt. Well, the uh, Grinnell and Teddy Roosevelt each had bought ranches in the American West. Um, Roosevelt's in on the Little Missouri River in Dakota Territory. Grinnell near the Medicine Bow Mountains in southern Wyoming. As many people know, the winter of 1886-87 was devastating, killing off livestock, a lot of wild animals. And suddenly, uh, Roosevelt and Grinnell saw, wait a second, um, the bounty of the West isn't um, limitless. And they decided over dinner one night at a, in New York at the house of Roosevelt's um, sister, that they would get a dozen or so affluent New Yorkers and form a 
club of gentlemen sportsmen who would codify rules on what was considered fair chase, what was the proper uh, conduct for hunting big game, strictly big game we're talking about, elk and, and moose and bighorn sheep and buffalo and things like that. And, uh, and for a number of years, that's what it was. It was for their group of, of gentlemen sportsmen. And Grinnell uh, then took it one step further and said, look, we need, to make the, we need to set a good example, not just as hunters, but as conservationists. And, and the Boone and Crockett Club continues today uh, under the notion that some of the best stewards of wildlife protection and perpetuation is through hunters. What do you talk about uh, Grinnell's relationships to the Native Americans? Uh, it's a very important part of his life. Um, and uh, he, he was considerably more enlightened than many of his contemporaries, I believe, in, in well, terms of advocating for them. Teddy Roosevelt, again, here, you know, a lot of uh, Grinnell's contemporaries, Eastern white, um, they might have been becoming enlightened in terms of conservation, but there were, many of them were very slow to appreciate um, or respect Native Americans. Native Americans by the late 1870s had been pushed onto reservations. They were impoverished. They were, uh, it, w- it was very hard times, as we know, uh, Teddy Roosevelt famously said, not all good Indian, not every good Indian is a dead Indian, but, but nine out of ten of them maybe are. He had a real blind spot for Native Americans. Grinnell, a contemporary of Roosevelt, a fellow New Yorker, was the opposite. Uh, and he really stands out in that respect. He, as a young man, he saw uh, Native Americans living in their traditional ways, and he, you know, he romanticized it, but then he realized, look, uh, one, their history is being um, wiped out and forgotten, and I need to do whatever I can do to record it before it all disappears. And then he realized that, hey, these are members of the human race. They are not uh, several rungs behind on the evolutionary ladder, like a lot of his Eastern contemporaries felt, and he became a very serious and um, passionate advocate for Native American rights. Two tribes in particular, the Blackfeet of Montana and the Cheyenne Indians, who had reservations in Montana and in Oklahoma, uh, really stands out as a progressive in, in this area. It, it's really extraordinary that a man could could be so completely on the right footing in, in every issue of his day. Um, very few uh, blind spots in his thinking. Uh, we really have, um, I can't think of a better example of a man doing good deeds on behalf of, of nature, and on, behand, on behalf of Native American people, all at the same time. I, it's like he had 48 hours in every day. 
he wrote a, was it a book, paper on the Cheyenne Indians? Yeah, he spent something 25, 30 years amongst the Cheyennes. He would, would sit down in his notebooks that he left behind dozens and dozens and writing down their stories. He was fixated on um, certain battles, the Battle of Little Bighorn. He walked the battlefield with Native Americans who had participated in the Custer fight. He was one of the first guys to tell the story from the Native American perspective. He was very sensitive to their their customs, to their um, to their sacred rites, and recorded them very, very painstakingly. Uh, wrote down their language, their stories, their folk tales. He was probably the greatest Native American ethnologist of his generation. Those books are still stand out as benchmarks in the discipline of ethnography today. So you had ethnography, of course, getting getting the voices of Native Americans out. Um, advocacy as well, I assume, uh, was, was powerful, advocating on, on behalf of the tribes. Well, because the... Uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs and Indian commissioners were generally corrupt political appointments, and he saw how they were riding roughshod over Indians and, and cheating them. And he would get back east and stalk down to Washington and get up in the face of the uh, Secretary of the Interior, the Commissioner of Indian Affairs, and, and, and he had enough influence uh, to say, look, back off. He got, he got uh, Indian agents. Fired. He um, he got rations uh, improved. Um, he wasn't just talking the talk when he was amongst the Indians. He would go back east and work throughout the year uh, to do what he could. He got um, he was adopted into into their tribes and, and highly respected. Uh, by the way, he knew Custer, right? And and you write that he he. Almost went with Custer to Little Bighorn. Yeah, he um, he kind of thought Custer was a bit of a blowhard, which in fact he was. He was with the Custer expedition into the Black Hills in 1874, so we saw Custer firsthand, and he saw uh, just what a what a, a large personality was. But two years later. Uh, Grinnell was invited to go back out with Custer. He was, they were going to go down and, and try to push the Northern Cheyenne and Sioux back onto the reservation. Grinnell's brother, his older brother, Frank, um, in a fluke accident, was hit in the back of the head with a baseball and died. The family went into mourning, and, and Grinnell had to write saying, oh, I can't come out to... Dakota to ride out with with Custer this summer, and so, but for an errant throw out of a baseball, Grinnell would have um, would have died at Little Bighorn. One more little uh, story, if I will, I can. But what Grinnell uh, did amongst the Indians, so he realized that uh, time was passing very quickly, and and there were a lot of Indians whom he met that had stories that dated all the way back to the early um, 1800s. He was talking to a young 
uh, to a very old Blackfeet man, and he was asking him, when was the first time you saw a white man? This is Grinnell writing in the 1890s. This very old man who was probably 100 said, yeah, I remember this occasion when we were out raiding for horses and we came upon these few men. We had a little scuffle, and one of the white men killed one of our fellow Blackfeet. Well, this was Meriwether Lewis. Wow. Uh, this is gr- who is describing an incident occurred in 1806. Grinnell was the last guy to do this. He, almost 100 years later, he has a firsthand account of a man who met um, the, the Meriwether Lewis of the Lewis and Clark expedition. He, in the Grinnell's sense of urgency to write down Native American history um, really uh, accelerated then and there. And, and he, so he got there just in time to get some of these early, early stories, almost pre-white presence stories. That, that, that is amazing, <laughs> Meriwether Lewis. Uh, let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about Forest and Stream, this megaphone that uh, Grinnell yeah. had that he used uh, so um, so uh, efficiently. Um, and talk about the national parks. He was instrumental in, in the national parks movement, the conservation uh, movement. Um, the book is Grinnell, America's Environmental Pioneer and His Restless Drive to Save the West. John Tolliver, the author, is with us. More following this break. Retired National Public Radio Moscow correspondent Corey Flintoff will be in Logan for a free community conversation about the costs of trust, what it takes to support news services abroad. Utah Public Radio invites you to join us for a discussion about international news coverage Friday, December 6th at 12 noon on the USU Logan campus. Parking available at the USU Terrace with a short walk to the Huntsman Business Building. That's Friday, December 6th at 12 noon at Huntsman Hall. Hi, this is Ari Shapiro. This year, I'm dreaming of a pink Christmas. When the band Pink Martini takes the stage, there will be lots of special guests, including the Von Trapps and me. I'll host the party and do some singing, too. So join us here for Pink Martini. Joy to the world, a holiday spectacular. Join us Thursday night at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in July. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We reached our last segment with John Tolliver. He's author of a new biography of a great conservationist. Uh, Grinnell is the name of the biography. We're talking about George Bird Grinnell. And uh, you're welcome to join this conversation at uh, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Sir George, John Tolliver, uh, Forest and Stream, uh, 1876 to 1911, was uh, Grinnell's tenure as editor and, uh, and chief. A popular, I guess, magazine, and uh, Grinnell had a, had a big megaphone there. Popular and, under Grinnell's guidance, very powerful. It was, you know, a typical it was black and white, almost like a newspaper, hook and, book, hook and bullet journal. But Grinnell saw it as a chance to really espouse his views and philosophy on conservation. And every issue uh, that were on the front page, he would call attention to some threat to wildlands or endorse uh, some effort to preserve 
uh, wild spaces or protect species. It, it really had great influence uh, and it became really the organ for the Boone and Crockett Club, too. Let me, uh, if I could, just read you one little quote from that appeared in Forest and Stream in 1892. This is when Yellowstone National Park, which was still the national park, the only, uh, was really being threatened by developers who wanted to run a railroad through it. They wanted to throw up hotels next to the geysers. Grinnell wrote this in Forest and Stream. Remember, this was uh, a hunting and fishing magazine, and now it's something else under Grinnell. And, he, and, and tell me if this doesn't sound like it could have been written today. Grinnell writes, The National Park is founded on sentiment. It is a legislative recognition of the existence in human nature of something higher than the sordid love of gain than the mere question of dollars and cents. To all that class who unblushingly place their little interest above a great public interest, who without scruple would inaugurate measures which would lead to the ruin of the National Park, Congress should oppose but one answer, and that should be written in distinct and permanent characters on every border of the park. Thus far thou shalt come and no further. Mm. Um, so that's coming a long way from uh, talking about uh, shotguns and, and, and fishing lures. Yeah, very prescient, very prescient indeed. Uh, in fact, in your introduction, I was thinking about today's issues of, of overcrowding and loving our lands to death. Uh, you start the book with Grinnell and his wife. This is in 1926. You know, you're talking about their um, visiting, and it's <laughs> and he's... He's annoyed by the overcrowding, um, and then he pushes on. He you know, he wants to get beyond the overcrowding and get back to you know seeing the land the way he was used to seeing it. Yeah, that was sort of bittersweet. But on the other hand, everybody who came to a national park got a little bit brainwashed. They came and respected the wildlands and the and these beautiful places, and they went home to their cities a little better off, and also. Uh, understanding the idea that we're not making any more of this uh, wonderful country. And I know in Utah, uh, the, the arguments back and forth on, for instance, Bears Ears are the same ones that Grinnell was having over 100 years ago with regard to um, Hetch Hetchy Reservoir in Yosemite or Yellowstone National Park or the one he worked so hard on behalf of with Glacier National Park. So it, it's the same concern today as then. The greatest threats to these places are often come locally, not nationally. The greatest protection comes from, from, from far away, from people who live on either coast. So these same tensions were happening then, and he, he saw it. Oh my God! It was just, uh, particularly from the from the railroads who who saw these parks. Well, the railroads were responsible for the creation of many of these parks. Think of Grand Canyon and the, and um, the Northern Pacific going into Glacier, and and so uh, they just had to be a balance. Um, and the his notion that look, these are these parks belong to the people. They were for the public, not for private commercial 
gain. And um, we didn't really know what a national park was. We made one in, in 1872 in Yellowstone, but what that meant, what a national park meant, was sort of up in the air. Grinnell uh, was very much at the center of that conservation, that conversation. Uh, back to Yellowstone, the idea was that, well, they, they had a idea of how, what, how big it should be, but then they realized, well, it needed to be even bigger because of the migratory patterns of the elk and the buffalo. Well, they never could quite get the park boundaries expanded, but they created a buffer zone around it and called it a national forest. So because of the first national park, we had the very first national forest created in the, the buffer zone around Yellowstone. So this was all part of the conversation that, that Grinnell was leading as early as the 1870s. Well, what were the main points of what, what he felt a national park should be, and did, did that change during his lifetime? Well, for once, he thought they should be under federal jurisdiction. They should have, their, they should have uh, rangers. He helped form the idea of a, a national park rangers. He thought that um, poaching should be outlawed and be punished, that wildlife should be protected, um, and that they be um, for the public's enjoyment. These were not commercial opportunities for the railroads or hoteliers. Um, they should be left wild. Hmm. Uh, by the way, I'm, I'm curious. He, he's uh, part of a generation that includes uh, Teddy Roosevelt, um, is how much is this conservation folded up in progressivism? Um, well, that's a very good question. So Grinnell went west as a young man, as we talked about. Uh, his contemporaries of in the east and were real, rolling up their their sleeves and and saying, "Look, we need to look after things in the east, like problems with." Uh, and with urbanization and with corruption and all the, all the messy problems of the industrial age in cities. He realized that um, the same thing ought to be done in conservation, that it was one of the causes that needed to be politicized, and, and, and he brought conservation into the progressive fold, if you will. So he got some of the same people. Roosevelt was a classic example of that, who were, were concerned with um, political corruption in the East and said, look, the same, the same worries apply out, in, out into the hinterlands. And so conservation became one of the progressive causes, um, have, thanks to Grinnell in large part. Well, just have about three minutes left. I wonder, um, this is always dangerous, but uh, have you project what Grinnell would, would think about some current issues? We know what he thought about, some, so he's very prescient. Uh, climate change is one. Grinnell Glacier is melting. It's a kind of an yeah, interesting symbol. Yeah, we need to get to that. Grinnell Glacier is now the poster child for climate change in North America. It's very popular. It is Grinnell Glacier is in Glacier National Park. It's on, up near the Canadian border, and Grinnell first climbed it and saw it in 1885. 
now there is the traffic to Grinnell Glacier. I've been there within the last year. is extraordinary. People are flocking there to see Grinnell Glacier before it melts. It will probably be gone in the next 30 years. It's like seeing the last passenger pigeon or dodo bird or something like that. Uh, and I think Grinnell would be sad, saddened by what's happening to his glacier, the glacier named after him, but I think the message it is sending is something that he would uh, he would applaud and, and be glad about. He um, he thinks that our narrow-minded uh, decision making by for personal uh, commercial greed is, um, is is we're paying a price for it in our environment, and, and he said that early on and said it throughout his life. Uh, just about a minute left. Um, I want, is, is there anything else that uh, you'd like to say about uh, George Bird Grinnell? Maybe we haven't mentioned. Well, I think it's sort of like the blind man and the elephant. You can jump in and grab hold of Grinnell so many ways. There's so much more to discuss about him. And uh, I just am so pleased to have met him. And I'm so eager to have um, more people get to know him now. Yeah, this will this will uh, fill a void here. Uh, the new biography is called Grinnell, America's Environmental Pioneer and His Restless Drive to Save the West. The author is uh, John Tolliver. John Tolliver, uh, thank you so much. Oh, I'm delighted. Thank you. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Lael Gilbert. I think the ability to prepare a scrambled egg is among the very basics of kitchen skills. Most people are cracking an egg over a pan sputtering with hot butter before they ever hear words like al dente or panko. Eggs are the wax-on-wax-off phase in a cooking education, stretching and strengthening the foundation upon which everything else is built. But what if, after all these years, you've been doing scrambled eggs wrong? What if you learned to cook an egg way back in college, say, and you've been doing it in the same way twice a week for five decades? Your eggs seem fine, but you've been settling. What if your scrambled eggs aren't anywhere near as good as they could be? Light and creamy, dazzling in their simplicity without the need for hot sauce or cheese to augment and embellish. What if they are just mediocre? Is it too late to change? I'm going to ask you to follow these instructions exactly the next time you cook an egg. I won't promise this will change your life. It actually won't at all. But it will help your scrambled eggs taste better and maybe make you think twice the next time you whip up this breakfast staple. First, don't crack the eggs into the pan. There's no way to get around it. You're going to have to dirty another dish. Crack them into a bowl and whisk them gently until they're combined. Dribble in a little water or milk if you want, around two teaspoons per egg. Some people don't add liquid, but I find that this makes the resulting scramble too tight. Water adds lightness, and milk can make things more creamy. Next, get your pan heating on the stove. There are several ways to go at this point. Most people slap in a bit of butter. Some people go with a nonstick pan and don't use any fat. Lately, I've fallen for olive oil. Sounds weird, but this is why. Butter adds flavor and creaminess, but it burns easily. So when you cook with it, you need to go low and slow. 
With olive oil, you can crank up the heat so that when you pour in the eggs, they balloon into a frothy, light pillow of protein in just seconds. It's a difference in texture and a slight difference in taste and depends on your preference. When your pan is hot, pour the egg mixture in and stir it gently with a silicone spatula, scraping the bottom as you go. There are a lot of different techniques, but I find it easiest to pull the cooked eggs to one side and tip the pan so that the runny egg can find the heat. And now we come to the pivotal point in this narrative. Do not overcook your scrambled eggs. If you don't remember anything else, remember this. When most of the liquid egg is cooked, but there's still plenty of softness and looseness, take the pan off the heat and fold them over on themselves. Then get the eggs out. They'll continue to cook for a few minutes and be perfect when the fork hits the curd. The timing on this takes a little practice, but it means the difference between a soft, satisfying, light and creamy bite and a bit of lifeless protein. You can wait until right at the end to add the salt and pepper, since you get more bang for each gram of sodium that way. You can also add anything from chunks of ham to chopped scallions to dress things up. But if you cook them right, the bling will be optional because scrambled eggs done right can stand completely and deliciously on their own. This is Lael Gilbert for Bread and Butter. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard and streaming online at upr.org.